significant steps of faith and opportunities to grow. So keep that in mind when you think about the year coming up. And if you have kids in that age group, I'd encourage them to participate in those activities. All right. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 24 this morning. This is actually going to be the last message in 1 Samuel as we kind of wrap up our summer series. And then starting next week with our ABFs and our uh, sermon series, we're going to be looking at a series of messages for six weeks on true spirituality. What does it mean to walk with God and to be disciples or faithful followers of Jesus? It's going to be a great study that kind of ties together what we're doing in both settings. And so we encourage you to participate in that. And we'll be looking at Romans 12 the next six weeks as we walk through that, uh, talking about discipleship. But today, again, we're going to look at 1 Samuel 24. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your scripture this morning, we give you thanks for your word for the work that it does in our life when we hear and obey it, when we listen to what you want to say to us and we act on that and put that into practice in our life. Help us to do that today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite psalms in Scripture is Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 contrasts two different ways that we can live. There is the way of the righteous, and there is the way of the wicked. And the psalm stands at the beginning of the book of Psalms to kind of highlight that and call attention to it. For each of us, there's a choice to be made about how we're going to live our life. And sometimes when we hear those words, righteous and wicked, we kind of take that to the extreme. And we think of the righteous as those being people that are kind of super holy, you know, who are really, really good. And we kind of wonder, I don't know if I fit into that. Or we think of the wicked and we think of that being like people that are really, really evil. You know, kind of like tyrants or mass murderers. But that's not the case. That's not what the psalmist is trying to do at the beginning there. He talks about how the righteous are those who love God who delight in his word and desire to please him. It's the people who want to do the right thing. They want to follow God's will for their life. And the wicked are those who really just live for themselves. They don't trust God. They don't have a desire to follow his word. They just kind of live and go their own way. And so they might be uh, even very nice people on the outside, but they are indifferent toward God. And they are following the way of the wicked. And then Psalm 1 ends with this statement where it talks about the end of life for those two different ways. And he says that the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Two different choices on how we can live. When we come to 1 Samuel 24 and we look at David and Saul's life, we see two men that are going in different directions. In fact, David and Saul kind of illustrate this principle of Scripture. Two people, two choices, two different ends. And it raises the question for all of us, which road are we on? Which way have we chosen to follow and live by and how can we stay to that course? And so what we want to do this morning is really look at David's life and ask the question, what can we learn from his example? Well, one of the things I see in the life of David is that the righteous live by faith. That is a verse that is 
comes up repeatedly in scripture that the righteous are to live by faith and we see that modeled in the life of David. Let's begin. In verses 1 and 2, as the story is told to us, it says that after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told that David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and he set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Saul, once again, is intent on finding David. He's obsessed with this thought that David is going to become the next king, and so Saul wants to capture him and kill him. And rather than being a good leader who is keeping his nation safe or carrying out God's will in terms of the protection of his people, he is so focused on David that he loses sight of these other things around him. Now the odds are against David. Saul has 3,000 chosen men, kind of that handpicked the best of the best. And David, we are told, has about 600 men with him, kind of a ragtag army of malcontents and people who didn't benefit under Saul and who came and who aligned themselves with David. And so he is outnumbered five to one. And you can think about it in this way too, you know, in terms of this series, this time in David's life when he is on the run from Saul, um, if Saul makes a mistake and misses David, uh, he can live to hunt another day, if you will. I mean, he can continue this pursuit for many, many years. But if David makes a mistake and is captured, he's dead. Just one mistake on David's part, and he could be in the hands of Saul. And Saul heard that David was in En Gedi. It's the wilderness area that is west of the Dead Sea. When we uh, had the opportunity to go to Israel, we actually went to En Gedi as one of the stops along the way. And it is there by the Dead Sea where you, on the west side, can go up into the mountains. And it's actually quite a beautiful area where there are streams and springs. And uh, you can walk up the paths that go along this stream up into the mountains. And we saw the wild goats that are still there to this day. And we saw the conies, the little creatures that are kind of like shy rabbits that are in that area. And there are caves. Lots and lots of caves. And this is where David went into that area to hide out. And God's hand of protection was upon David. In an interesting turn of events, God would give David the upper hand. Look at verses 3 to 7. Saul came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. That's politely saying he went in for a little privacy because he needed to go to the bathroom. And so that's where he goes in. And David and his men were far back in the cave. And the men said, David, this is the day the Lord spoke of. When he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. But afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. 
so here you have this picture of David and his men hiding in the back of this cave. Must have been a very large cave for them to be in there. And there are the sheep pens out front, and Saul goes in to relieve himself, and literally, David catches Saul with his pants down. And knowing, you know, I mean, when you think about this kind of situation, David's men are saying, you know, God's done this. I mean, David, here's your chance to take advantage of this situation and you can kill Saul and be done with it. But David would not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. Instead, what he did was he crept up kind of unnoticed and you know you think about that I know how sound travels in a cave you know I wonder about the whispering and the movement you know and how was David able to get up there and uh, I would think it was probably the noise of the sheep that kind of covered all of that and the bleeding and the sound of them that kind of echoed through the cave so that David was able to do this and he comes up behind him and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe And after he does that, he is stricken in his conscience. His conscience bothered him because of how that might be interpreted. Remember going back in Samuel, when there was a point where Saul had disobeyed God and Samuel was angry at what Saul had done and Samuel turned to leave. And Saul reaches out and he grabs Samuel's robe and he tears it. And Samuel says to him that God has torn the kingdom from you. You see, that robe and that symbol of authority had significance. And so after David thought about it, cutting off a corner of his robe could be seen by some as a rebellious act, that he was taking part of the kingdom for himself and taking it by force. And David didn't want to do that. David would trust the Lord for divine protection, and he would trust the Lord for his divine timing. David's men thought that he should act now. And David instead chose to trust the Lord for his timing when he would be given the kingdom. The righteous are to live by faith, by trust, by confidence in the Lord and his will for our life as we seek to follow him. And there are times in our life when that trust in God will be tested. Or there will be others around us perhaps who will say, well, that's, I don't get that. Why would you do that? Why would you pray about that? Or why would you wait for God to give you some sort of direction? I think you ought to just go ahead and do that. Because there are people all around us who choose to live their life apart from God and they have no desire to wait upon Him and to hear what He might say. But God calls us to live differently to put our trust in the Lord even when others do not. In my study this week, I came across an interesting story that was told by Bill Arnold in his commentary. It's called The Mice and the Piano. And here's what he said. Imagine a family of mice who live all their lives in an old upright piano. You can kind of picture those old ones. Maybe you have one in your home or you did have one. And imagine these mice living in the bottom of that old upright piano. That's their world. Kind of like we live in our corner of this world or this universe. And to the mice in their piano world came the music of the instrument. It filled all the dark spaces with sound and harmony. And at first the mice were very much impressed by it. 
they liked the thought that there was someone who made the music. And even though they could not see him, he was close to them. And they loved to think of the great player whom they could not see. But then one day a daring mouse climbed up part of the piano and he returned very thoughtful. He had discovered the secret of the music. Wires. There were wires that were of various lengths and they trembled and vibrated and that's what made the sound of the music. And he said that they would need to all kind of rethink their thought about their world. He challenged the thought of an unseen player that made the music. They must revise their old beliefs. And none but the most conservative could any longer believe in an unseen player. Later, another explorer carried the explanation further. He climbed up and he discovered hammers. And hammers were now the secret. Numbers of hammers that kind of tapped on the wires. And he developed a far more complicated theory of the music. It all went to show that they lived in a purely mechanical and mathematical world. And the unseen player came to be thought of as a myth. Only the most persistent continued to believe. But the article concluded with this brief statement. But the pianist continued to play the piano. You know, I think about those of you that are students. And many of our students have already gone off to colleges and universities already. Some are still in process of moving. We have students who will be going into the public schools and high school and elementary. And you may hear in your classes complicated theories of how the universe came into being or how man evolved. But you need to remember this one fact. That in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. You know, I think online this week there was a story too about Stephen Hawking. You know, making this claim that God is not necessary to explain the origin of the universe. In his wisdom, he had solved the mysteries of the universe. And he had his theories about that. And there are many people just like that. But God calls us to put our trust in him, to live by faith, and to remember that God is still God. He reigns. And it doesn't matter what theories are out there and all the things that may be said. And there may be, and there are observations we can make about the world around us that God has designed. But God is still God, and the music still plays. The righteous are those who live by faith. The righteous are also those who do what is right. We see that in verses 8 to 13 where David went out of the cave and he called out to Saul and he said, My Lord the King. He wanted to explain what had just happened and when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, Why do you listen to men when they say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not lift my hand against my master, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. 
Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. And may the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. When faced with a choice, David on this occasion chose to do the right thing. Now we know in David's life that there will be another time with Bathsheba where he will not do the right thing and he will suffer for it. There will be consequences for him and for his family. And it is a reminder that, you know, none of us are, are um, exempt from the possibility of gross sin in our life. None of us can think that we have arrived at a point where we are always going to just do the right thing and we don't have to worry about it. No. We need to walk with God each day. We need to humbly walk with God and depend upon His Holy Spirit and trust in His Word and make those choices each and every day to do the right thing. And on this occasion, David proved his righteousness and his faithfulness by not killing Saul when he had the opportunity to do so. And David called on God as a witness. And he was saying this in front of all of the people that were there. May the Lord judge between you and me. He chose to do the right thing when faced with this opportunity. May that be said of us too. A number of years ago, there was a documentary that was produced on PBS that was called The Weapons of the Spirit. And Weapons of the Spirit is a true story about the people of Le Chambon, France, who said no to the Nazis during World War II. And during those years of World War II, this town of about 5,000 Christians saved the lives of some 5,000 Jews. They were a safe haven. They were a hiding place. They were a church and a community that continued to protect those individuals and see them through that difficult time. What was remarkable about those people, though, is that they didn't see themselves as heroes. They were simply doing what they thought was right. And when they were asked by Pierre Savo, who did this documentary, why did they do those things, they traced it back to their church and the faithful preaching of God's Word. They had lived their life under the hearing of God's Word, and they had put that into practice in their life. And when this very difficult time in history came that could indeed cost them their own life for assisting the Jews, they chose to do the right thing. It was natural to them. And I think of what a marvelous thing that is when we have lived our life so saturated by the Word of God and so in tune with Him that it is the natural instinct of our heart then to choose to do the right thing when faced with temptations or difficult decisions. It shows the power of God's Word to shape and mold our character. And imagine if that were to happen in our world. I mean... Our world would be a very different place if everybody simply followed the Ten Commandments, for example. And they loved God and they honored their parents. And they didn't steal and they didn't lie and they didn't murder and they didn't covet because those are the things that God says are wrong. 
and instead they chose to live their lives in a way caring for the people around them, being people who look for opportunities to do good and to help and to serve and to minister because God has so shaped their life. The righteous are those who choose to do the right thing. When faced with a decision or faced with temptation, they go to the Word of God and they seek His counsel. And that's what David did in this situation. And thirdly, the righteous are those who wait patiently for God to act. Look at verses 14 and following. David said, Against whom is the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? I mean, David's saying, I'm like a flea on a dog here. I mean, why are you wasting your time on me? Aren't there way more important things that you should be doing? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. And when David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud, and he said, You are more righteous than I. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. And then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. David would wait for God's timing to be king. He would not try to take that into his own hands and determine the date. He would wait for God to act because he knew that God could either remove Saul from power or Saul's life might be taken in battle or God could take his life just as in the very next chapter he will do it for the life of Nabal, the fool. God was watching over David. And in these years, going through the last chapters of Samuel, David would grow as a leader, and he would grow in his trust in God. And Saul was on the other path. Saul would move farther and farther from God, and he would, at the end, die by his own sword, wounded in battle, and then take his own life. You see the progression of two different ways of living and where it comes to at the end. David chose to wait on God. And sometimes that is hard for us to do, but it is the very best thing. We've been working on these stories for our 25th anniversary as a church, and it struck me as I looked through that how many stories involve waiting on God. Whether it was God's call to ministry, or when we as a church were looking for staff to bring them, and we would do our search, and we would pray and wait and trust God or whether it was building projects and sometimes we had to wait and then trust God to provide and He would, or sometimes it was ministry decisions. I thought of how many times we waited on God and just the right time He would guide us or bring us to that decision or He would provide and He would bless. It's a principle of life that we need to learn. The righteous are those who wait patiently 
on God. Henry Nouwen is a well-known author, and he wrote a book called Sabbatical Journeys. And in that book, he tells a story about some friends of his who are trapeze artists. They're called the Flying Rudellas. And they told Nouwen that there is a special relationship in trapeze artists between the flyer and the catcher. The flyer is the one who lets go of the bar and hangs out there in the air, and the catcher is the one who hopefully catches them. And he said this as he was talking to them. He said, you know, there comes a point when they build up to this climax where the flyer has to let go of the bar and he arcs his back and he hangs out there in the air waiting for the catcher to come and snatch him. And he said there is this inviolable rule among trapeze artists. The flyer must not try to catch the catcher. He must hang there in absolute trust and the catcher will come and grab him. And you know, it's the same thing for us spiritually with the Lord. There are those times in our life where God asks us to take that step of faith and to trust him. And maybe you feel like you're in circumstances right now where you're just waiting on God. You don't know. I mean, waiting, whether it's for a job or for circumstances to change, or you're waiting in terms of a health issue, or you're waiting on God for your children, or whatever it may be. And you feel like you're hanging there in the air. That's okay. Trust Him. And wait on God to act and to catch you with His mighty arms. David would wait on the Lord. And in His time... David would become the king of Israel. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. He watches over those who trust him to keep us from harm, to guide us in decisions, to give us wisdom and strength. The only question for us is, will we trust him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the promises of your word and the assurances that you give. I thank you for the examples of others who have walked with you and have learned to trust you and to wait upon you. And I pray that we would do the same, whether it is a personal decision that we are making or whether it's a decision as a church. May we be a people that have learned to pray and to put our confidence in you, to listen for your Holy Spirit, and to act when you move. Father, help us to do that this week. Help us to do that this year. Help us to do it throughout our life. We pray in your name.